Our reading today is from Isaiah 56 and 57, and it's on page 742 in the Church Bibles. And we're starting to read at verse 1 of chapter 56. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off, and foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. Come, all you beasts of the field, come and devour all you beasts of the forest. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They are dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. They are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. Come, each one cries. Let me get wine. Let us drink our fill of beer. And tomorrow will be like today, or or even far better. The righteous perish, and no one ponders it in his heart. Devout men are taken away, and no one understands that the righteous are taken away to be spared from evil. Those who walk uprightly enter into peace. They find rest as they lie in death. But you, come here, you sons of a sorceress, you offspring of adulterers and prostitutes. Whom are you mocking? At whom do you sneer and stick out your tongue? Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. They, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In the light of these things, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed You climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked on their nakedness. You went to Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the grave itself. You were wearied by all your ways, but you would not say it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you so dreaded and feared that you have been false to me and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? 
Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works, and they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off, a mere breath will blow them away. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. For this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. But then the spirit of man would grow faint beneath me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on in his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is God's word. And let me add my welcome to Matt's earlier. My name is Andy Towner. I'm the assistant minister here. And it's a great joy to welcome you. It would really help me if you could uh, get those Bibles again that we just had read and turn to page uh, 742. That would be really helpful. And on the back of the notice sheet, there's a little outline of where we're going this morning. That would also be a great use to you. And I'm going to pray as we come to God's word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that your word is true food, that it is good for us, because it is you, the sovereign Lord, King of the universe speaking. And we pray now, Father, that whatever our need, you might give it to us. We pray that you might be our teacher, you might strengthen us yourself to hear you and to obey. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a real joy, isn't it, to be here to celebrate Esther's baptism, the day she formally joins the church, the people of God. It's a great and exciting day, and it's brilliant to have you with us if you're here particularly for that reason. It's a great joy to have you with us if you're here to support Jason and Rachel and the wider family, and even us as a church family, as we welcome Esther, a new member of our church family here. It's great to have you with us. Uh, And the day, I think, throws into very sharp relief a very simple question. A day like today throws into sharp relief a very simple question, which is, how are you going to bring up Esther? Parents, godparents, wider family, friends of Jason and Rachel. What are you going to seek to instill in Esther? What sort of things are you going to prioritize for her? What What are your hopes for her? What are your desires for her? What are your fears for her? Today throws that question, I think, into the forefront of our minds. And maybe you've already had to answer that question, because maybe, and I don't want to judge this, but maybe you've actually brought a present this morning for the family. I don't know, some of us might have. 
So maybe you've already had to think, what do I really want for Esther? So you've thought about your gift. And you've brought some book tokens because you really want Esther to learn to be a good reader. It's a great idea. I'm all in favor of reading. I read loads and it's a brilliant thing to do. But maybe you've given her book tokens because reading really matters. Maybe you thought, we'll give her some jewelry because I want Esther to grow up to be beautiful. Maybe you thought to yourself, she's seven months old, that's far too early. I'm going to wait till she's at least 12 and then I'm going to kick in to being involved in Esther and then I'm going to take her out. I'm going to take her out to see a West End show because I want her to really appreciate the arts and culture. Maybe you've thought to yourself, I'm looking forward to when she's sort of five or six. Interesting age, five or six, isn't it? You know the ages of kids, don't you? Uh, age two, what? What is that? Age three, why? Age four, why not? You know how old a child is by just very simple diagnosis. You're waiting until she's five or six and you can start to, I don't know what it is. What are we wanting? What are we hoping? What are we maybe praying? For Esther, a day like today, throws that into sharp relief. And we're here to ask that question as we as a church start a new series at the very end of Isaiah's prophecy. Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, Isaiah prophesied, and our question fits perfectly with his question, because Isaiah is saying, how should we live now? What should we prioritize now? What is important in the now? And Isaiah is going to say, the way you know what matters now is by knowing what's going to happen in the future. Very straightforward. Isaiah is going to say, you know what matters now because you know what's going to come. So really, the answer to our question for Esther is going to be, look ahead through the next 60, 80, 100 years. Look ahead through the events of her life. What's going to happen? And if you knew that, you'd, knew exa- you'd know exactly what to prioritize for Esther, wouldn't you? As parents, godparents, wider family, or what? Because we're used to living in the light of the future. That's why, for example, I mean, this has been in the news, hasn't it? Civil servants, for the last six weeks, not the last two weeks, but before that. We all know, don't we, that civil servants didn't know how to prepare for a new government. They had three piles on their desks, didn't they? Because they had a pile of, here's what we'll do if Labour get back in. They had a pile of, here's what we'll do if we get a Tory majority. And we had a pile of, well, that, the third pile was actually quite useful in the end, wasn't it? They had a pile of, here's what we'll do if we get some sort of coalition. The civil servants had nearly two months of not knowing what to do, in a sense, because they didn't know what was going to happen in the future. And if they'd known for sure it was going to be a large Tory majority, their six weeks would have been really clear, wouldn't it? You see, you can't know what to do until you know the future. Contrast that with Hong Kong in the 90s. Hong Kong, everyone knew that in 97, Hong Kong was to be handed back. There was going to be a change of oversight. Do you see? So if you lived in Hong Kong in the mid-90s, you knew what to do. You knew how to live. You knew what to plan for. Because in 97, everything was going to change. So it's very easy to live there, wasn't it? Because the future was certain, the future was clear, and you knew what to do. So Isaiah's writing hundreds of years before Jesus Christ lived and died on earth. He's writing, I mean, the events we're looking at here, that these are the time of Zeno's paradoxes being devised. This is when Aesop is writing his fables. That's the sort of time we're dealing with here, about 540 years before Christ. He's writing a long time before these events, but because of the way his prophecy works, it's very contemporary. You see, Isaiah basically says three things. It's a long book. He says three things. First 39 chapters, he says... Humans, you're not good. (laughs) Humans, you're not perfect. Humans, you're not righteous like God is. God is perfectly righteous, perfectly pure, perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly fair. And Isaiah spends 39 chapters saying, you're not. 
He then spends the next 15 chapters, 40 to 55, saying, but God will give you his righteousness. You can't get to be right with God. You can't make yourselves acceptable to God. But God can make you acceptable to himself. And he's going to do that through his servants. He's going to do that through a suffering servant. That's going to have to work that he is pierced for your transgressions. He needs to be crushed for your iniquities. The punishment that's upon him is going to buy you peace so that by his wounds you'll be healed. That's Isaiah 53. We're not righteous, says Isaiah, but God will give you his own righteousness by his servant. He's talking about Jesus Christ there dying on the cross, being pierced. And the last 10 chapters we're in now say, well, well, how do you live then? How do you live if you've had this major problem? God's put it right. What do you do next? That's the question we've got here at the end of Isaiah. And do you see that's very contemporary for us now? Because although for Isaiah it was prophecy, for us it's history. We look back and we know that Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago. He really was pierced with nails and spear for our transgressions. He really was crushed. But it is true that the punishment that was on him can buy us peace with God. And by his wounds we can be healed. So we fit very naturally into the third part of Isaiah. Because it's asking the question, how do you live after that event? How do you live after that event? And of course we're living now in the time between between Jesus coming and paying that price on the cross and returning finally to bring in his righteous kingdom. And so Isaiah's going to say to us, look, the future's righteous, live righteously. The future's just, live justly. The future's fair, live fairly. The future's holy, live... Do you see? He's going to say it's very simple to know how to live because you know what's coming. That's what we're kind of going to see. So the first thing I want to say is, is the comfort of God's generosity And then we're going to see the warning of his judgment. So first of all, the comfort of his generosity. That's in chapter 56. Did you notice that? Just in verse 1, we see kind of all of this in in a little picture in verse 1 of 56, page 742 at the bottom there. Maintain justice. Do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand, and my righteousness will soon be revealed. See, righteousness is coming. Salvation is coming. So be righteous. Live with justice. Do what is right. Be holy. Be pure, be fair, because God's coming. Now, I think it's fairly obvious, isn't it, that you can tell what people are waiting for by how they wait. If I had two photos for you and I said to you, you've got to pick which of these photos is which, okay? There's two photos. One is a photo of some people queuing for Glastonbury Festival, and the other is a photo of some people queuing for a dentist. Does anybody here think they'd have any problems choosing which photo was which? By facial expressions? I mean, if it was video, it'd be even easier, wouldn't it? by face expressions, by, uh, by dress. You can tell what people are expecting by how they wait. I had to queue for root canal treatments a while ago now. Uh, I had an infection in my jawbone. They have to draw, drill all the way through your tooth, right into your jawbone. Uh, and it's, I'm pretty confident if you could see a photo of me an hour before that operation, uh, I would not look like I was queuing for a massive festival in the West Country. I would be in a lot of pain. You see, you can tell what people are waiting for by how they wait. And God's saying, you're waiting for me. So wait like me. You're waiting for me. So wait like me. You're waiting for my righteousness. So wait righteously. Be just. Be good. Be fair. Because that's what the future is. That's how you've got to behave now. 
But secondly, to live generously, verses 3 to 8. These verses are brilliant. I don't know what you think of God as like. I don't know whether you think of God as the God who excludes. The Christian God, the God of the Old Testament particularly, he is the God who's all about drawing lines of exclusion, isn't he? And he's all about saying, you're not in and you're not in and you're not in and not you. I don't know if you think about God like that, but do you see here, you get the opposite. Here you see what God is really like. There were divisions in the Old uh, testament before christ because god's people were different from the world to look brilliant and beautiful that was the reason there were divisions god's people were slightly set apart so that you could look at them and say hey they've got a good justice system they look after each other but they've got a neighborhood watch system no other nations got that they were set apart but the whole purpose of them being set apart was so that they'd look amazing and you'd want to join and that's emphasized here isn't it because we look at eunuchs and foreigners now if you're a eunuch If you're a eunuch, if you're unable to have children, what's the one thing you desire above all? Because you want your name to be perpetuated. The one thing you want if you're a eunuch is you want to be remembered because you're you're, you're cut off physically and your name is going to be cut off. When you die, there's no one to remember you. No one to keep your your name remembered. So what does God promise to the cut-off ones who cannot have a name that's ever remembered? What does he promise for them, verse 5? To you I will give a memorial and a name. It's going to be better than sons and daughters because it's going to be an everlasting name that's never cut off. Do you see? If you're a cut-off one, you're never going to be cut off. If you're one that can't have children, you're going to have something better than children. If you're one whose family line cannot continue, your name's going to be everlasting. Do you see the grace and generosity of God to those with that particular need? What if you're a foreigner? What if you're far away from home? in a foreign country. What does God promise foreigners? Verse 7, I will bring you to my house. It will be your house, and it will be a house for all nations. If you're a foreigner, you're promised a home and a homecoming. Isn't that what you want? When you've been abroad for months and months and months, don't you just want a home? It is different, isn't it, being on your own sofa than someone else's sofa. There is just a different thing about being home. And God says, come to your real home. Do you see what God is saying in these verses? God is saying, I don't care about your past. Come here for a future. God is saying, I don't care what you are. I'm showing you what you can be. God is saying, I see how bad your life is, and I want to show you I can care for you and bless you. All those divisions we thought were harsh and judgmental were actually for blessing. So that the cut-off ones would never be cut off. And the away-from-home ones would always be at home. Do you see how loving God's generosity is? That's the comfort, I think, for us. That how we live now, defined by this future, and this future is going to be one of generous blessing, of homecomings. That's a great comfort, I think, for us from God's character. But God's character is not one-sided. God's character is multifaceted. God's character, the great diamond, you could look at lots of different faces of it. And just as God is perfectly fair, sorry, just as God is perfectly loving and generous, he's also perfectly fair. So if we think of God's loving generosity, we only get half a picture. We need to see, too, that God has a fair judgment. And I don't know what you make of that. As soon as a preacher mentions the word judgment, I don't know what, what thoughts that sparks. You know, head, let me be honest, I've had to think about judgment quite a lot this week because I'm preaching here this morning on it. And let me be honest, when, when I think of judgment, my, I find it both encouraging and discouraging. 
I do find it severely discouraging sometimes to think about God's fair judgments. It's one of those things that sometimes I can get my head a little bit around, but my heart often doesn't follow. When you think about the truth that God is fair, I find my heart, my heart is just slow to be in line with my head on this. But here's what I found helpful this week. I did some reading about Rwanda in 1994. 800,000 people killed in less than three months at a conservative estimate. That was the fastest genocide ever in human history. The fastest genocide ever in human history. And it wasn't a, a gang of soldiers going around doing it. It was a massive popular uprising. At least a million people involved in it. It was neighbor killing neighbor, teenage girls being raped, boys being emasculated, men being forced to kill their wives, brothers being forced to sodomize their sisters. On UN evidence, a million people guilty. On United Nations evidence, a million people guilty. And after 19 years of legal work and trials, 19 years of United Nations putting time and effort and money and energy into that situation, in 2003, how many people have been condemned as part of that? Of the million, how many? 26. 26 people. It's when you look at those horrors in the earth and you see no justice that God's fair judgment, God's fair justice just begins to look a little bit easier to understand. It helps your heart move with your head and say, yeah, this is actually good. Now, I know that since 2003, there's been real movement in Rwanda and more is going on there now. But I heard just two years ago of a, a girl, she was too young to be raped in 94, so they just cut her hands off. I say just, they cut her hands off. She's left with two stumps from the age of eight. And you know her favorite possession? Her favorite possession is a, a thing a little bit like a watch strap. It's a little bit of uh, leather about that big. It's the best thing she's ever been given. Because someone can tie a spoon to her stump and she can eat for herself now. She loves just being able to eat for herself after all those years of someone having to feed her. And so when you think of that and things like that across the world, that the truth that God is a fair judge as well as lovingly generous, actually, it's more palatable, isn't it? And that's what's going on a little bit here as Isaiah looks out and sees horrible things going on. First of all, he says the leaders are guilty. That's verses 9 to 12. The watchmen, verse 10, they're blind. The leaders are at fault here. They're blind, they see nothing. And because they see nothing, they know nothing. And because they lack knowledge, they're mute. They've got no message. And because they've got no message, they just descend into this kind of escapism. They're lazy, they lie around, they dream, they love to sleep. They're dogs with huge appetites. They've never got enough. Instead of being shepherds, they've become like sheep. At the very bottom of that column there, they all turn to their own way. That's, what, that's how Isaiah describes sheep. Or we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And now you get shepherds who are doing the same thing. Shepherds who, instead of looking after others, are just in it for themselves. There's a collapse of leadership, sure, but chapter 57 says you can't just blame the leaders. Actually, it's all of us. It's all those people. It's all of us here today. But we're going to see that in a second. It's all of those people there. Everyone is guilty, verses 1 to 13 of chapter 57. 
See, what's happening is, verse 1, people are dying, good people are dying, and no one is asking why. The righteous perish, and no one wonders in their hearts. It's exactly that Rwanda situation that's going on, isn't it, in Isaiah? Good people are dying, and no one wonders what's going on. What's happened, verse 4, they've become rebels. They're a brood of rebels. They've rebelled against gods. Verse 5, they've turned to other gods. These oaks and spreading trees, he's not, he's not talking about getting some shade when you're sunbathing. These were, these were trees they worshipped at in the forest. Cults of prostitution. That's what's going on in verse 5. Or if you read on, prostitution amongst the trees. What happens on the crags? You kill your own children on the crags. The priests of Moloch demanded child sacrifices. You see, God looks on at this abhorrent situation and God hates it because it's unjust and it's awful. Do you see how this can help our hearts move with our heads on God's fair justice? And the irony is, of course, these were God's people. So look at verse 8. On their doors and doorposts, they've got pagan symbols. What should they have had on their doors and doorposts? Well, God's people should have had the Ten Commandments on their doors and doorposts. They should have had God's word front and center in their lives. And they've just taken it down and put up pagan symbols instead. It's a turning away from the living gods. And that's why God will judge. Because he looks at people sacrificing children and he says, that's abhorrent. Something needs to be done. Now, how do we today relate to this passage that's from two, two and a half thousand years ago? I want to see that we're different but still similar. So we are different to these people in the passage, but we're similar too. How are we different? Well, we're not Israel. This is written to God's people. They have got generations and generations and generations of history knowing God. They've been brought up knowing this Lord. They've been taught from their youth about this God's. God's historic people. And that might not be us today. We might not have grown up in Christian families at all. We might never have ever read the Bible. We might have heard nothing about Jesus. So we're not in the same situation as these groups, are we? Because they were very guilty. And secondly, of course, we're not following Molech. We're not sacrificing our children. Here they're turning to these abhorrent religions with enforced prostitution and child sacrifice. We're not doing that, I don't think. So do you see, we are different. We're not the same as these people. But we're similar. We're similar. We're similar because, well, first of all, we're similar if we're not following the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible, the Lord. The root of the problem here is that they're turning away from Yahweh. They're turning away from the God of the Bible. They're turning to all sorts of different religions. But the Bible's clear there's only one God. He's the sovereign Lord. If there's more than one, he couldn't be the sovereign Lord, could he? He'd have to be the third of a sovereign Lord, or the tenth of a sovereign Lord, or sovereign over a little bit Lord. But the God of the Bible is the sovereign Lord. He is the king. He's the ruler. He is in charge. So we're similar to these people if we're not following him. And we're similar to these people if we're not living morally perfect lives. It's easy, isn't it, to condemn child sacrifice. It's easy to condemn enforced prostitution. But look at verse 11, or verse 10, sorry. The leaders are being condemned. Oh, sorry, sorry, of chapter 56, verse 10, sorry, page 743. The leaders are condemned for being lazy. They're being condemned for lying around and sleeping. Now, God is not against sleep. Sleep is a great invention and a great gift from God and one that I enjoy very much, although less in the last month since Katie and I have had a child. But, you know, I intend to get back to enjoying sleep in the future. But you see, it's not just child child sacrifice or prostitution. Just being lazy 
makes you guilty before God. Not just the big things, but the little things. We're similar to these people if we're not living morally perfect lives. And we're similar to because we're accountable to him. He is God. He is God and there's no other. So we're different, yes. But we're similar to... Now, I don't know what you make of that at this point. You might have... There might have been too much to swallow in the last 15 minutes to even consider this question. But just grant all that stuff for a second and ask, what do you do now then? And come back to me over coffee about all the other stuff. But what would you do now then? If you were to agree that you live a morally imperfect life and you're accountable before God, do you want to know what everybody in the world does at that point? Do you want to know what every single person I've ever asked says at that point? Not as bad as him. I'm not as bad as him. We play the driving test excuse. I call it the driving test excuse. You know, this happened to me. I failed my driving test twice. So you get to the end of your driving test and you've driven brilliantly. Inevitably in a driving test, it was in Essex. Inevitably in a driving test, you've been cut up by a few people. There's been some pretty rubbish driving going on around you. In my case, I was a teacher at the time, so the rubbish driving was by pupils I should have been teaching. I could see they were skiving lessons, and inevitably they cut me up during my driving test. It's a real pain. You get to the end of your driving test, and the driving instructor turns around to you and says... I'm very sorry to tell you, you failed. And immediately, it might be because I'm a competitive bloke and I didn't want to fail my driving test, but immediately I felt welling up inside me. But I'm not as bad as them. I've seen the way that some of the, the pupils I teach drive their cars. They've all passed. I'm not as bad as them. And what would the driving instructor have said? Doesn't matter. You might be right. You might not be as bad as them. But you still failed. Do you see? Naturally, when confronted with our own imperfections and our accountability before God, we always want to play ourselves on side by finding someone worse. But it doesn't make any difference. At the end of my driving test, I still got given a fail certificate twice. And for the record, I did pass a third time. Isaiah says, if you want to know how to live in between times, if you want to know how to live after that gift of righteousness and before God returns finally at the end of time. Live with righteousness because that's what's coming. But live knowing your accountability and knowing that you're all in the same boat. We're all in the boat of the imperfect. Knowing that we're all in the same position, hated by the God who loves righteousness and justice. So the question is, what do we do about that? I don't know what you make of it. You here of two groups of people. There's a group of people over here who are given great comfort. Come in. Have an everlasting name. Have your homecoming. There's a group of people over here who are giving serious warning. And my question is, how do I get to be in this group? That, that seems to me a pretty good question at this point. How do I get to be in this group that's given comfort rather than this group who's given warning? And, and if it's the first you've ever heard of any of this, then it might be that the right response is just to think a bit more. If this is the first you've ever heard of the Bible, well, it's pretty high tariff, isn't it? You might want to pick Jason's brain or pick Rachel's brain later. You might want to come and argue with me over coffee. You're very welcome to do that. If it's the first you've heard, lots of questions, lots to keep thinking about. Maybe come to this Christianity Explore course, pub around the corner, three evenings, have a drink, eat food, ask your questions. But I still want to know how to not be in this group and how to be in this group. And look at the very end of the passage over the page now. Look at the very end. You end up with just two groups. 
At the end of chapter 57, in verse 19 and verse 21, you've got two Greeks. Verse 19, peace, peace, says the Lord, to those who are far and near. That's this group over here. They're at peace. Verse 21, there's no peace for the wicked. Two groups. One's at peace, one's not at peace. How do you get to be in the right-hand group? How do you get comfort for your future? How do you avoid warning of severe judgment? And this is where we misunderstand Christianity. You see, the world is not split into two groups, bad people and good people. That is not the message of the Bible. That is not the message of Christianity. It's not bad and good people. Those two groups are not, the comforted are not the good people and the warned are not the bad people. No, no. If we're spilling into bad and good people, we are all over here. That's what the Bible says. We're all over here. So it's not bad and good. Okay, it's not bad and good. What must a split be? Maybe it's sort of religious people and not religious people. Maybe that's what. That's not the message of Christianity either. Because did you see in this passage, the people doing the evil, they were religious. They were just worshipping a God who demanded child sacrifices. They were just worshipping a God who let them be lazy. No, no, if we just split ourselves into religious and non-religious, the Bible says we're all religious. We all follow something. We all prioritize something. We all live our life for something under some scheme. It's not bad and good. It's not religious and religious. It's very simple. The way to be in this group is very simple. It's just to be humble. The world is split into proud and humble, says the Bible. The world is split into proud and humble, says the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we started our service with that verse 15. Did you notice it in chapter 57? This is what the high and lofty one says, the one who lives forever, whose name is holy, talking about God. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who's contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you see? God says, I'm the God on high, and I'm with the humble. Isn't that what you want from a supreme ruler? You want real power and real loving generosity. God says, I'm with the humble, the contrite, the lowly. I'm with people who know in their hearts they're no better than anyone else. I'm with people who never play the driving test excuse because they know the answer. I'm with people who admit their own imperfections in the light of my perfections. God says, I'm with those people, the humble. We know, don't we, from life that you can only help those who recognize their need of help. You can only comfort people who are weeping. You can only encourage those who are sad. You can only strengthen those who are weak. And the gospel is help for those who are contrite. The gospel is great news for those who are humble. The gospel is a real blessing to those who are needy. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You need to be poor in spirit. And then the gift is for you. There's a healthy self-despair. That's the way that Matt Fuller, the senior pastor here, puts it. There's a healthy self-despair that is necessary for salvation. The difference between warning and comfort is, do you need God? Or do you still play the driving test excuse? That's the difference. Not good and bad. Not religious and unreligious. Proud and humble. I've never trained as a lifeguard. I've always wanted to. I think it's because I grew up in the Baywatch generation where you kind of, you know, you just, you just, you need to just train as a lifeguard, don't you? So you can get away with wearing 
a sort of dark orange you know, color. I, mean, I guess you need a suntan to go with that as well, so I have to work on that. But I, I always wanted to train as a lifeguard. I never have. But I'm told that one of the things you learn as a lifeguard is if someone's drowning and thrashing about, you shouldn't go straight away and help them. If someone's drowning and thrashing about and you try and help them, the problem could be that they hit you or kick you or thrash about so much that you get in trouble too. Now, it sounds a little bit harsh, doesn't it? But apparently, and I did check this out on Friday night with someone who is a trained lifeguard, so apparently this is still true. If someone's thrashing about and could be a danger to you, what you do is you wait. You wait until they've stopped trying to save themselves. You dive in. And then you can save them. When they've stopped trying to save themselves, when they've stopped flailing and thrashing, you go in, you put your arm around them, you drag them to the side of the pool, and they're fine. And that's what the God of the Bible says. When you stop trying to save yourself, when you stop trying to be good enough for me yourself, then I'll save you. Then I'll offer you great comfort. Then I'll offer you great and perfect generosity. Then you need no longer fear any serious warnings or judgments. Uh, One pastor in the state says it this way. All you need is need. To be a Christian, all you need is need. If you need God, be comforted. Be comforted by his loving generosity. If you don't need God, be warned. Be warned by his righteous judgments. Choose humility. It's the path of God's blessing. And that's what we must choose and pray and plan and hope for, for Esther too. Just as for all of us. In the light of the future, we need to pray that Esther is humble. Because that'll mean she's not in this camp here of warning. She's in this camp here of blessing. In the light of the future, in the light of God's return, we need to pray and plan and hope and work that Esther, along with all of us, learns to be humble before God. Because there's great comfort in that humility. Let's pray. Father, we see you promising peace to those who are far and near. And you know that in our hearts we long to be at peace at peace with ourselves, at peace with each other, at peace with you. Please, Father, in your mercy, in your kindness, might you teach us to choose humility. We see the comfort of your generosity. We see the warning of your judgment. Please, Father, might you help us to understand you rightly in all your characteristics and respond to you rightly in all your perfections. We long that for Esther as she grows up. We long that for one another too. And we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.